Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are embarking on a new short story collection of Agatha Christie's. Catherine Brobeck, what are we discussing? We are discussing The Red Signal, first published in The Grand Magazine. We haven't come across that in a while. Oh my, our old friend. I know, June 1924. An early one. And very early. And then it was collected in The Hound of Death and other stories in the UK in October 1933. But, and this is interesting, not by Collins Crime. It was part of a weird, like, coupon promotion. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) I know. In something called The Passing Show. And so they essentially had, for their readers, you know, a selection of books that were published only for this initiative. Yeah, apparently it was very popular with the readers. And uh, Collins Crime did publish it, uh, like a, you know, bookstore copy in February 1936. But that's actually kind of a long time later. That is definitely a while later. And yeah, I actually was interested to hear what the other books were that readers could choose from. So in addition to The Hound of Death, there was Jungle Girl by Edgar Rice Burroughs. We have talked about him before. The Sun Will Shine by May Edgington. The Veiled Delight by Marjorie Bowen. The Venner Crime by John Rode, another uh, Golden Age mystery novelist we have discussed before. And Q33 by George Goodchild. Yeah, apparently the first edition of this book is one of the easier early Christie's to obtain nowadays, meaning that there must have been a lot of first editions printed. (laughs) So uh, I suppose a lot of people chose The Hound of Death when they collected all of their coupons and and sent it into this press. I think The Passing Show is the name of the the weekly magazine. And then I think the publisher is Autumn's, appropriately named, Autumn's Press, O-D-H-A-M-S. But we have a couple of these collections that don't fall under the Collins Crime Club label at first, but this one really doesn't. Like, this is very much outside of the norm for Christie. Very much outside. And then it was published in the U.S. in The Witness for the Prosecution and Other Stories all the way in 1948. Right. It's interesting that we have not covered a single story from this collection yet on this podcast. We have discussed before how we've been purposely haphazard in our selection of short stories throughout this podcast, since we are, of course, being chronological when it comes to the novels. So we kind of zigzag all over the place. But thus far, we haven't covered anything from this collection, except actually for The Witness for the Prosecution, which, of course, was first originally published as Traitor Hands. And we did a special episode on that story and the play and its movie versions. And that is the standout within this collection. That might be the understatement of the century. But this collection, as we will discover with The Red Signal and the other titles that we do eventually discuss at some point, it's an odd collection. And most of these stories are 
spooky Christie, supernatural Christie, um, much right. more along the lines of Mr. Quinn, but without even the organizing principle of a Quinn Satterthwaite detective duo or anything like that. So they are really bizarre. And I mean, I'm excited to cover them, but it just, there's been no imperative for us to cover them thus far. Right. Well, I mean, I would also note that a lot of these um, end up appearing in the Golden Ball, which we have covered yeah. a number of short stories that were later published. And if um, listeners remember, the Golden Ball was not published in the U.S. until the 1970s. Right. So basically, the point is there are a lot of oddball stories. And then also some of them have, I think, weird publication histories where presumably they must have been published in magazine form at some point, but they have weird provenance. I think. Right, where the original magazine publication is untraceable or it's just kind of bizarre. It's only traceable in either the US or the UK. And it, she probably published both in the US and the UK. She just tended to do that for these stories before they were collected because she could make a pretty penny. She wanted that the way. money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go get that money. Yeah. It, it's definitely an oddball collection. I think that's a good way of putting it. And yeah, I mean, that became our, our kind of rule of thumb was if for the Listerdale mystery, if it was collected in the U.S. in the Golden Ball, then it was definitely weird and it might not have been the strongest story within that collection. And I think we might find what that are you, for some of these. Are you, are you saying that we might have some fruitful Sundays on our hands? <laughs> we might. We might have some, some fruitful Sundays. But I'm legitimately interested to see because I don't think that I've read a number of these stories before, or if I did, I read them a long time ago and I barely remember them. And I would say that that is very much the case for The Red Signal. Yes, I have no recollection of the story. It felt as if I were reading it for the first time. So let's get right into The Red Signal and talk about our victim. Who would that be, Catherine Brobeck? Well, thanks for putting me in the tough spot here. The hot seat. Uh, <laughs> the hot seat. Yeah, we're going to leave out the victim because if we, um, if I told you who the victim was, it would pretty much be story over. So no victim right now. Fair enough. It seems as if we are not in a standard puzzle mystery scenario here in this story. Would that be oh, a fair statement? I, it's a definite fair statement, Kemper. So uh, yeah. yeah, we're in an odd space here. I suspect there will be zero or maybe only one or two puzzle mysteries within the entire Hound of Death collection. But again, we shall see as we investigate further. There, well, there is a clue sort of in this one. So I will give it that. <laughs> yes. No, I when, when, when we get to the clue portion, I would argue that we can see the origins even of the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was on the near horizon when she was writing right. this, since that was published in, uh, I believe, 26, because it was right. I know it was right before her disappearance at the end of that year. So, all right, let's talk about the suspects. First up, we have Dermot West, a guest at a dinner party uh, from whose perspective the story is told. And I would also add that we obviously are all familiar with Raymond West, Miss Marple's mm -hmm. nephew, but Christy, one of her early pen names, I forget what the first name was, but it was something West. 
And I just feel like the the last name West was just a name that she rather fancied. And as an early story, I just think it's funny that she was using it here too. It's just clearly one that was bubbling up in her mind a lot. And um, um, was it just me? But did you read this whole story thinking of Dermot Mulroney, Dylan McDermott? <laughs> Hello and welcome to America's Most Difficult Game Show. We show contestants a picture and they have to tell us who it is. That's right, it's time for... All right. Who's next? It's another West. Sir Ellington West, he's a famous alienist, which, of course, is a no longer used term for psychiatrist. And he has offices on Harley Street. On where? Harley Street. (laughs) (coughs) (laughs) I think the the usual doom that can be portended when Harley Street is referenced certainly is brought to bear. Applies here. On this story, yeah. yeah. All right, next up we have Jack Trent, who is the host of the dinner party that takes place in the uh, first half of the story. And we have Claire Trent, who's Jack's beautiful sort of mannequin of a wife. It's really weird because she's supposed to be like ethereal and beautiful and interesting, except the way in which she's described makes her seem like literally a mannequin. Like she has a drooping golden head. Right. Drooping is definitely like, like one of the main adjectives used to describe her. Yeah. And it's like, it's. Basically, like, she's not maybe a person. It's very weird. Yeah. Like, she's maybe Kim Cattrall for Mannequin. But actually, Kim Cattrall for Mannequin has way more personality. When you were making me, didn't you feel a certain inspiration? Almost like your hands were being moved by a force none of this world. You made this body so that I could come to life. Next up, we've got Mrs. Violet Eversley. Another guest at the dinner party. And then we have a medium who is the guest of honor at the dinner party. They're all there actually to experience a seance. Of course they are. Of course. Why not? Again, Mysterious Mr. Quinn. Yes, the Sitterford Mystery, a rare novel that incorporates an actual seance. I have to say that I would appreciate us not lumping the Mr. Quinn stories in with this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> She's doing something similar. It's just that it, it actually really makes me appreciate the Mr. Quinn stories because those characters, they make those stories coalesce around something specific so that they really do function as a collection in a way that I didn't appreciate until I read this story. Yeah, I I mean, that I can agree with. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about this podcast for me is that I never really had an appreciation for Mr. Quinn. I was just like, uh, I read those as like a kid. Right. And... I really do appreciate them. I adore them. I actually adore them. Me too. Yeah. I think you can tell by how much we natter on about them. Oh, I think that there's there's so much to so much to talk about in them and they're endlessly interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. We open on the aforementioned suspects, all of them, gathered together at the home of the Trents. And Dermot West is best friends with Jack. Jack Trent, I believe, actually saved his life in Mm -hmm. in war. But he is, of course, secretly Andrew Lincoln from Love Actually. And he is in love with his best friend's wife, Claire. I've already clipped that for sure on this podcast, so I'm not going to do it again. But we all know, we all know the trope. Love actually wasn't the first to use it. It won't be the last. I always thought you disliked me. (laughs) So yeah, he's secretly in love with Jack's beautiful mannequin wife, Claire. And at the dinner party, the group begins talking about ESP and premonitions and just sort of second sighty kind of stuff, in part because they've all gathered to see the talents of a famous medium. And Claire seems a bit spooked 
by all of this talk. And Sir Ellington West is dismissive of pretty much everything and everyone. And to the extent that he believes in so-called premonitions, he thinks that they can be explained away rationally. And Dermot West isn't so sure. He recounts this story about having had a terrible feeling when he was in Mesopotamia. Mm, Of course he was. Having the sense of a quote-unquote red signal title check. That's what he calls this feeling, this, this premonition. Sort of like train lights. Green means go, yellow means caution, red means danger. Stop. So right. he, because he got this red signal in Mesopotamia one night, he slept outside of his tent. And in the morning, he discovered that his bed was stabbed through with a sword and that he would have been killed by one of the Arab servants uh, if he had been in the bed. And, you know, his uncle was able to explain this way by saying, your subconscious picked up on something that this man, you know, either said or did around you. And I'm sure that you, you just observed something that put you on your guard. It's not as if anything supernatural is happening here. And he tells another story as well, right, about this, but it's the exact same sort of idea that he, he claims to have had some sort of a supernatural premonition and his uncle just explains it away and poo-poos it. The other explanation that is given, right, is not just that it's picking up on vibes, but that sometimes after the fact, Mm -hmm. if something bad has happened, then you can interpret the events leading up to it as somehow having advanced knowledge of what was going to happen. More popularly known these days, I would say, is confirmation bias. Yeah. It's essentially confirmation bias. Yeah. Correct. So um, at the seance, there's a lot of um, knocking, as one expects, (laughs) (laughs) in a seance. And um, the medium channels her non-native English-speaking interlocutor. (laughs) <laughs> which is awkward. Yeah, he's, and, he's Japanese, um, I believe, and there's a little bit uh, yep. of cringeworthy dialogue, as there always yes. is with these mediums interlocutors when Christy portrays them. I know. I don't know if it's maybe just like the connection is not that clear to the other side. Right. Well, there, there's static. <laughs> why can't their interlocutor be a fellow Englishman or woman? Why does it have to be? I think it was a Native American once, and then this oh, time yeah, it's a Japanese was, person. Yeah. Let's say that this was less bad it was. than the Native American. Significantly, <laughs> so, significantly less yes. bad. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they're sort of generic, you know, medium speak, and Dermot's kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like standard canned. I'm sensing an older relative had passed, all that kind of stuff, Except Except, very specifically, she ends up warning them that, at least for one person there, don't go home. That something is going to go terribly awry if you go home that night. And Dermot takes this to mean him, because now he's, like, officially spooked. And Well, um, he had actually been spooked even before that, right? Because as he's talking about that red signal, he stops himself, right? Because he's about to say, well, you know, I felt it these other two times— and I'm feeling it right now, and it's not until he's about to say it and stops himself that he even realizes he's feeling it right now. He hasn't enunciated it to himself, so to speak. So right. he he realizes even before all of this business with the medium that he's getting the red signal right now. But he says, oh, that makes no sense. How is that possible? I'm here with friends. And that's when we learn about his feelings for Claire, because he says, could it just be about that? Just the, my general caginess around her, since I'm in love with my best friend's wife, but I know that I can never do anything about her, et cetera, et cetera. But then when she says this, it kind of brings all of that back to the fore for him. And he's convinced that she must actually be talking 
talking to him. Right. By the way, so, that other story that involved a medium with the Native American interlocutor was a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. Just saying. Well, hey, they, they can't all be winners. It was the voice in the dark. Seance figures very strongly in that story as well. After the seance, you know, they dismiss the medium and the rest of the group decide that they're going to go to a club, the Grafton Galleries. But first, um, Dermot's uncle asks him to go home with him because he has to discuss something with him in person. And what might that be, Kemper? So at his uncle's house, Sir Allington tells him he is aware of Dermot's feelings for Claire and warns him not to act on them in large part due to the idea that insanity is hereditary and visible to his trained eye. And this is something that Dermot has been intuiting over the course of the evening as well. It never rings true to him that his his very rational and, and kind of haughty uncle would have any interest in a spiritual medium. So he cottons on pretty quickly to the notion that his uncle must be there to observe someone and diagnose. He's an ulterior motive. Yeah, he must be diagnosing whether or not someone is insane because that's what an alienist does, right? I'll have to ask Dakota Fanning about that. (laughs) Shout out to Caleb Carr. (laughs) And Claire is acting so nervous. She even turns over a chair at one point during the dinner as she's, you know, leaving the table early, as ladies do, I suppose. That was a rather little Victorian moment in which the ladies left early. Didn't realize people were still doing that in the 20s, but hey, sure, I guess. Yeah, especially since they're headed out to the grafting galleries right after. Yeah, it's very yeah. it's very old fashioned, but I, a little little charming, I guess. In 1924, that wasn't out of the question. So he's worried, really, that his uncle is there to diagnose that somehow Claire is insane. And he does have this idea that something strange happened with her mother in the past. It's a little unclear. She seems to have just disappeared under a bit of a cloud of mystery. So he's he doesn't think that Claire is crazy because he's in love with her, but he just worries that perhaps his uncle is making this false diagnosis and condemning her to be locked away. So when they start having this conversation, Dermot gets very angry because he just assumes that uh, his uncle is, of course, talking about Claire, since this is within the context of him saying that your feelings for Claire, you can't act on them. And, you know, he says it. the insanity there may not be obvious to you, but it's obvious to my trained eye. They get into a shouting match at the end of which Dermot says he'd like to shoot his uncle in right. uh, hearing of his uncle's servant. And Dermot storms off and heads to the Grafton Galleries. Right, where he ends up alone with, who else? Claire, where she's, you know, clearly distressed from earlier. And she ends up confessing her feelings to him. And she's really embarrassed. You know, she just needs him to know because it's really weighing on her. And what does he do? He tells her that he actually feels the same way and has since they first met. And this distresses her even more because she says that she wishes she had known this years earlier before it's too late. And, you know, it's sort of ambiguous about what too late means. He essentially proposes that they run away together and she can't do it. And so he abruptly decides to leave um, the nightclub. As he is headed out, he runs into Jack 
And, you know, they have a little chat and poor Dermot is basically trying to run away from him. Yeah. So he gets out of the club and heads back to his flat. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's all very fraught between him and Claire then, but ambiguous. <laughs> and this is what Claire right. says. Oh no, please. Can't you see? I couldn't now. It would be ugly, ugly, ugly. All along, I've wanted to be good, and now it would be ugly as well. And he's like, what? You crazy. So back at his flat, Dermot is still haunted by the medium's warning and everything that's happened to him on this very busy evening. And he searches his flat for anything that might be wrong because he is still getting this red signal hard. Right. And he finds in a very obvious location a handkerchief drawer. (laughs) something hard, that would be a loaded revolver that has had one shot fired from it lately. So that's Mm -hmm. interesting. (laughs) And Yeah, it gets more interesting. It does, because at the same time, there's a knock on the door. And when he opens it, he is confronted by two Scotland Yard investigators, and he impersonates his manservant. (laughs) A little bit of quick thinking there. I know, very quick thinking. I was like, gosh, Dermot, maybe I've underestimated you. (laughs) As it turns out, his uncle, Sir Ellington West, has been shot and killed. And his uncle's own manservant, of course, has told Scotland Yard about that argument that he overheard between the two men. And then the Scotland Yard men immediately find the murder weapon, which is this loaded gun that is in Dermot's flat. And the sergeant stays with Dermot, who's still pretending to be his own servant at this point. But then Dermot manages to flee out of an upstairs window and onto the street where he runs into his best friend, Jack Trent, who was coming to check on him. Right. So Jack um, seems to realize the dire straits that Dermot is finding himself in and he says, okay, okay, okay. We're going to go back to my house and you're going to hide there. So they go back there and inside, like there's something like a little bit off. Essentially Jack says that Claire has locked herself in her room, which is super weird. There's like a lot of weirdness involving internally locked doors and keys. Yeah. Dermot now is increasingly more paranoid because something is wrong here too. Yeah, something is very, very strange, seemingly with Jack, which is interesting. And I would just, so we're going to get into the world as it actually is. And we don't really have any clues in this story because it's not really a puzzle mystery, but I have one. I I have one too. So we'll see if it's the same one. Okay. Well, I think is is yours going to be about heredity? No, it's not. Oh, okay. Okay. Neither is mine. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Mine is is that I just like to read out a portion of the story and it's this key conversation between Dermot and his uncle when Dermot is assuming that they are speaking of Claire Trent's insanity. This is right after his uncle confirms that he has a tendress for Mrs. Jack Trent. And then Dermot says to his uncle, I know the reason for your presence at dinner tonight. A, the physician was clearly startled. How did you know that? Call it a guess, sir. I am right, am I not, when I say that you were there in your professional capacity? Sir Ellington strode up and down. You are quite right, Dermot. I could not, of course, have told you so myself, though I am afraid it will soon be common property. Dermot's heart contracted. You mean that you have 
made up your mind? Yes, there is insanity in the family. On the mother's side, a sad case, a very sad case. I can't believe it, sir. I dare say not. To the layman, there are few, if any, signs apparent. And then this goes on a bit. And then finally, Dermot turned away with a groan, burying his face in his hands. Claire, white and golden Claire. And the circumstances continued the physician comfortably. I felt it incumbent on me to warn you. Claire, murmured Dermot, my poor Claire. Yes, indeed, we must all pity her, is what his uncle says. This is, you know, some linguistic gymnastics that Christy is performing here. It's a good clue. And I will also say this, Kemper, you can tell that we've been doing this for too long because that was my clue, too. (laughs) I'm both happy and sad. (laughs) I'm both overjoyed and devastated at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot, right, about omission as a clue, Mm -hmm. right? And we also get a repeat of it in the conversation that Dermot and Claire have in the nightclub. Right. When she's just saying it's too late, it would it's also ugly now. She's not actually saying what is too late and what is ugly. We are making the assumption, based on the fact that this is a third-person narration very much from Dermot's point of view. So Dermot's assumptions are the reader's assumptions, unless we are astute enough not to make assumptions along with him. And this right. is, I look at this as the proto- kind of the protoplasmic version of what she went on to do in the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Again, not that long after this, because she also left some things out there. She did some linguistic gymnastics, and she preyed on the reader's siding with the first-person narrator in that case, which is such a, you know, such a sort of stronger point of view and a more seductive point of view even than what we have here. And she fooled everyone, you know, I mean, or she fooled most people who who read it for the first time. So I love the fact that you can see you can see the same mechanism at work here, even though it's certainly not as involved as in that novel. Right. And I mean, I think that is something that we come across repeatedly, right? Not just Roger Ackroyd, but the idea that you should be reading not just between the lines, but you should be reading the lines and looking for what they're not saying. Obviously, here, we are never told who actually is supposed to be the insane person. Right. And if you were being a close reader, you'd realize that. But I mean, I think it's actually pretty cleverly done here. Yeah. It's a neat little trick for a short story. And I love when the lesson to be taken as readers is to just read more closely and more carefully and to think harder about it and not make assumptions. And so often that is what she is implicitly telling the reader to do in her stories. Like, yes, I'm making this really easy for you to read. This is fun. But read closely and think about what you're reading that will bear fruit. And like, that's a very pleasing exercise, you know? Absolutely. And also the idea that it's not necessarily about who's lying. It's about who is telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And who is actually voicing what's actually going on. Useful life lesson, probably. You don't necessarily need to take everything literally. You should also listen to what's not being said. Mm -hmm. And it's why I think, you know, there are still some people who who believe that the murder of Roger Ackroyd isn't playing fair. But I think she's totally playing fair. Yeah, I agree. I don't think anyone could pretend that this story isn't playing fair. And she, what she's doing with Murder Roger Ackroyd is just a better, more involved version of what she's doing here. It's just yeah, got a lot tr- more bells and whistles. Trusting the narrator. Yeah. 
So obviously the deduction there is that we should perhaps think hard about who might be insane within this couple. And if we get there, we pretty much get to our resolution. Let's talk about the world as it actually is, because you know what? Jack crazy. Oh, insane. Clinically insane. That's why uh, Sir Ellington uh, was brought in. Yeah. Um, not, not, not hyperbole there, but clinically insane. Unfortunately, Jack, Jack be crazy, but Jack also be nimble because he's been doing a lot of... <laughs> And quick and a good shot. Yeah, he's been doing a lot of a lot of stuff here. He is actually the one who killed Sir Allington, of course, and he framed Dermot for that. He had been lurking outside Sir Allington's house, and he waited until Dermot left. Then he went in and shot Sir Allington with that gun, ran to Dermot's flat with the keys that he had pocketed at the dinner party. He lifted them off of Dermot, and he planted the gun in the flat. Then he headed back to the Grafton Galleries, where he replanted Dermot's keys on Dermot as he was going to leave. Because again, he went directly from Sir Allington's house to Grafton Galleries, and then back to his house. So that's why the timing of all this works out as well. Jack was able to go in and out of Dermot's flat without Dermot ever realizing it, even with his keys, which is, it's a little mechanically complicated and awkward to explain, but it makes perfect sense. And it's actually fairly simple and even elegant. Yeah. It just involves Jack being incredibly, uh, again, (laughs) nimble and quick. And Dermot never patting himself down for his keys, which, you know what, if it were me, I would have realized because I am checking for my keys every five minutes, even if I'm like at home. (laughs) Oh, um, Kemper, once many years ago, I accidentally had turned the lock on my door and had literally walked outside just to like go dump some garbage out and had let the door swing shut. Mm -hmm. And had, of course, locked my keys into my apartment. And so do you know what I had to do, Kemper? Kill your best friend's uncle? I did have to do that. (laughs) And then, you know, I had to move a recycling bin to a window and then I had to climb up the recycling bin and then break into my own apartment. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, you know what? I triple check my keys every single time I leave. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lesson well learned. Anyway, the entire dinner party had been the setup between Sir Allington and Claire um, because Claire really wanted confirmation that her husband was, you know, insane. Cuckoo. And so she had gone to him for advice. To that extent, Dermot is right that it was completely weird for Sir Allington to be there. And, you know, he was there in his capacity as an alienist. And, and Claire was Claire, nervous for a very good reason. Yeah, because she doesn't want to get caught because she's afraid that she's living with a psychopath. Right. Yeah, and so essentially it was a combination of a provocation and an intervention. Yeah. Um, it seems a little bit risky to me. I don't know what you think about that, Kemper. It seems like a little bit of a um, potentially disastrous choice. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why Sir Ellington was warning his nephew off of Claire, because this is obviously a toxic situation at this point. And this psychopath, be he locked up or not, is going to probably train a great deal of hatred on the man who marries his former wife, especially since he was supposedly his best friend. The reason why he's warning him off of Claire, of course, is that you just you you don't want to be wrapped up with these people. It's all too ugly, as Claire herself was saying, which is why she wishes she had just known about Dermot's feelings because they could have just gotten together and she would have been able to bypass all this literal craziness 
with Jack. Yeah, and tragedy yeah. and like fear, right? Yeah, she doesn't want to bring all of this down on Dermot either. But you know what? As it turns out, she is not going to have to because what happens in the final moments of the story, Catherine? Claire apparently um, was not locked in her bedroom because she goes and gets Scotland Yard and they burst into the Trent house, Claire by their side, to essentially save Dermot. But um, in the sort of bedlam that ensues, Jack, who again is a very good shot, shoots himself. Which like, I mean, you don't really have to be a good shot shoot yourself but fair <laughs> i actually Touché. was confused by it because at first i thought i was like oh did he shoot dermot i.e you shots. know what you know what in fairness it actually does read a little bit like that which is almost a little bit like sometimes it's the kind of shadow version of things even though that's definitely not what she is saying happened but like the tragic version of this and the alternate reality story like you could see that happening which would also be in keeping with these events just the mere implication is a little chilling a final little chilling code to well, also this because he kind of he, he kind of cackles gleefully that he had two guns. Yeah, you know the one that he used to frame Dermot, and then the one that he's now threatening Dermot with. But one would hope that Claire, with her drooping golden head and white neck, and Dermot West can now live happily ever after. I do have to say, how happily ever after is it? If you've been held hostage by your best friend, who turns out to be a psychopath, and then you have to be saved by your love interest, except then he shoots himself in front of you. That seems like some PTSD is going to be happening there. I actually totally agree. And I think that Christy is not, as we know, one to shy away from a happy ending, including a hastily tacked on happy ending to a story if she feels that it's warranted and she wants to go there. And she very much does not go there with this story. I know. And I actually feel like that is, I think that your interpretation of events is 100% warranted. I think that there's actually less of a chance than usual that those two will end up together or end up together blissfully happy anyway. Like they are, they're broken. Certainly Claire is anyway by these events. Terrified and scarred for life. Again, these are spooky, weird, oddball stories in this collection. And we don't have um, Mr. Quinn showing up to somehow, you know, sprinkle magic dust. Oh, he would have united those two lovers and made them so happy. I know. I know it would have been good. And Mr. Satterthwaite would have had some weird artist on the side whose paintings he could have appreciated and like said something nice about. Yeah. I know. There would have been some duchesses. (laughs) There totally would have been a duchess at that party. Definitely so. Oh, well. Alas. Alas. Well, that is the red signal. Join us next time for, in fact, a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. The answer to all of our dreams, apparently, we will be able to engage once more with Mr. Harley Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite. We will be covering Harlequin's Lane, which is the final story within the mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. Although, have no fear, we do have two further Mr. Quinn stories that were not collected in the mysterious Mr. Quinn to discuss after those. And after that episode, we will be covering our next novel, Taken at the Flood, or as it is known in the U.S., There is a Tide. This is our second Poirot novel in a row. Very exciting. We had The Hollow. Always exciting. And now we have Taken at the Flood. And we have a weird, very um, sort of contemporary, not contemporary to us, but unusually contemporary setting 
I think, for this. For We do. Yeah, this has a specific post-war chronology to it. Similar, really, to NRM, which was placed very mm-hmm. specifically within wartime. I think that when these stories are attached to an actual war, <laughs> i.e. World War II, Christy just got very specific in a way she usually didn't with the chronology. So, yeah. Right. We are very much in the immediate aftermath of the war. And I'm sure we will have a lot to discuss on that front. Very much looking forward to it. And you can join us over at our Patreon site. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. Our next Patreon episode, we will be talking about the Mary Westmacott novel, Unfinished Portrait. Very exciting. Uh, it's very exciting because that is her probably most autobiographical piece of fiction that she ever wrote. So if that interests you, you might want to check out what we're talking about over at Patreon. And you can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Twitter account is at allaboutthedame. Catherine's Twitter account is at Brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we so appreciate the ratings and reviews. Please, please keep them coming. They really help us out. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. 